I'm Bill Moyers. It's good to have your ear. John Lithgow and King Lear. When we talk about Lear, where it fits in our time, we are in a very strange moment. Uh, I look around and I, you know, 50% of the big budget entertainment you're seeing these days is dystopian. Uh, this is the era of Hunger Games and blasted landscapes and Walking Dead. The zombie is the new uh, sort of archetype of our times. I mean, how, how horrific is that? And somehow or other, we've, entered, we've internalized that. We've made that our entertainment. Welcome to you and welcome to my guest, King Lear. King Lear, that is, as portrayed by the actor John Lithgow, who grew the beard for the role and has been frightening our neighbors here in New York City merely by walking down the street at twilight's last gleaming, headed to Central Park, where under the stars he storms and stalks and strides the stage as Shakespeare's aging, raging old tyrant, descending into dementia at war with time, his daughters, and himself. There is no more difficult role in the theater and no play more relevant to the moment anytime and anywhere is performed. With all the carnage and violence around us in the world, King Lear mirrors the folly of reckless leadership, the arrogance of power, and the depth of human anguish. Blow winds and crack your cheeks! Rage! Blow you! Cataracts and hurricanes! Spout! Till you have drenched our steeples, drowned the cocks, you sulfurous and thought-executing fires, vaunt couriers to oak-cleaving thunderbolts, singe this white head! The artistic director of New York's public theater, Oscar Eustace, says the current revival of interest in Lear comes perhaps because the possibility of genuine chaos, real cannibalizing barbarism, is closer to the surface than we can possibly imagine. And he asks, could the popularity of Lear be the high culture analog to the popularity of Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead on television? I'll put that question to King Lear himself, my friend and neighbor John Lithgow. He's a constant and notable presence on stage, television, and in the movies. A two-time Oscar nominee, multiple Tony and Emmy winner, the author of books for kids, a memoir about acting, and editor of a collection of poetry. His delightful and moving new film, Love is Strange, opens August 22nd. John, welcome. Thank you, Bill. Looking every inch the king. Yes, yes, I have my King Lear beard for you today. So what do you think? Why is there such interest again in him? Is he our contemporary? I think you're quite right. I, I mean, I find the, the process of reading the front page of the New York Times every day <laughs> deeply unsettling. I, I, I've almost stopped doing it. It's so upsetting. And I get on stage and speak those lines. I mean, to me, the most pointed line in the whole play is, I've tanned too little care of this. You know, we live fairly comfortable lives, and every day you're reminded of, uh, of the, the astonishing misery in the rest of the world. Are you aware that you, Lear, are speaking to our times? It, it speaks to all times. I mean, it's a play about big, big elemental things. 
growing old, losing your viability, losing your mind, uh, terrible disruptions and dysfunction between family members, bringing down uh, devastation on your own life by your own folly and your own bad mistakes and your own vanity. These are all huge ideas and they always resonate. They resonated for Shakespeare, which is why he wrote it. I, I don't think there is a play which is so nakedly painful. It's just in, in his late scenes when he says how, imagine a line that is four words, how, how, howl, howl. There was, there's, there's never been such a gut-wrenching cry of anguish. Uh, chaos has descended on this poor man and has spread out to his whole world. And it's almost a ritual that Shakespeare takes us through, uh, showing us devastation and then restoring order and giving us hope. Uh, I mean, otherwise it's just you can't bear the, the, the hopelessness unless there is some sort of redemption. Where do you find hope in Lear? He has learned his own folly. He's regained his love for, for his daughter, Cordelia. Whom he had disinherited Disinherit. early in the first act. And turned on her savagely for the most petulant and vain reasons. Uh, he's, he's learned all about himself. Even as he's lost his mind, He's gained a sense of himself. Uh, that, I think, is the story that Shakespeare is telling. When we talk about Lear, where it fits in our time, uh, we are in a very strange moment. Uh, I look around and I, you know, 50% of the big budget entertainment you are seeing these days is dystopian. Uh, this is the era of Hunger Games and blasted landscapes and walking dead. The zombie is the new uh, sort of archetype of our time. It's like the avatar of our time is, mm. is a zombie. I mean, how, how horrific is that? And somehow or other we've, enter we've internalized that, we've made that our entertainment. Uh, I think one thing that's drawing people to King Lear these days, Shakespeare is a great philosopher. He, he, he's a he, he puts some sort of order into our, to lends some order to our chaotic thinking. Uh, and I think that's, what, that's why everybody's flocking to Lear, as they have for three or four productions in the last year. When you were growing up, your father directed Shakespearean festivals in Ohio. And you told me once that when you were a child, Shakespeare just washed over you like a warm bath. Mm -hmm. And yet here you are having become this figure, one of the most egomaniacal, uh, one of the most vengeful men in literature, I, it's hard for me to understand how you become something you really aren't. Well, first of all, I feel very protective of King Lear. You just <laughs> talked very harshly about him. <laughs> I, I'm very forgiving of him because I do believe, even as the play begins, he's already lost something. He's already in serious trouble. A age has happened to him, uh, and my heart goes out to him. So I don't think of him as, as an egomaniacal, tyrannical monster. He's a man with deep flaws, of course. Uh, 
but there again, and with Dan Sullivan's guidance, you do get a sense of what a beloved man he has been, what a big heart he has on his very first entrance. You see him as someone whom everybody loved, who just makes a horrendous mistake. He becomes victimized by his own vanity. I love that particular duality. I love any role in which a character turns out not to be what you expected him to be. To me, all the great drama comes from good people doing bad things and bad people doing good things. The contradictions in all of us. That beautiful line from Hamlet, I am myself indifferent, honest, and yet I could accuse me of such things that it were better my mother had never borne me. Uh, this, is, this is why Shakespeare is, our, is arguably the greatest playwright, is he just had this perception of people that we are all flawed. There's goodness in all of us, and there's badness in all of us, and the intermingling, the conflict between those two is where drama comes in. I, I was watching that first act as a spectator, and then I suddenly became a father because when watching it, because when he does this senseless thing, he's, he's jealous, and he's, he thinks he's been insulted because Cordelia won't say how much she loves him. What can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sisters speak? Nothing, my lord. Nothing? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. Nothing will come of nothing. And he, yeah. Fletcher, when you wonder how many times have you as a father broken the heart of somebody who loves you but can't tell you. Oh, I I think parenthood is so complicated. I've made such mistakes as a parent. I have so many regrets. And I'm a a good enough father. (laughs) But, uh, uh, yeah, I I mean, he makes two mistakes. He rejects Cordelia out of hand for being honest. And he embraces Goneril and Reagan for being hypocritical. His other you know, two daughters, yeah. Yeah, and he only discovers later that, that they, have, they haven't exactly lied to him. I want to be fair to them, too, as in, in fact, I think Shakespeare is. Uh, but he's, he has entered that stage in his life when he's misperceiving things, and he has to go through, uh, uh, he has to go through this agonizing process of gaining self-knowledge. The moment I always remember about King Lear is when he's when, when the king is on the heath with Gloucester, and Gloucester's blind, and Lear says, nonetheless, you see the world. And Gloucester says, I see it feelingly. And Lear says, what, art mad? A man may see how this world goes with no eyes. Look with thine ears. I could go on, of course, but I see it feelingly as a, another beautiful Shakespearean line. And I wonder, why does it take the blind to see the truth? Well, that's a, a wonderful theme running all through the play. There are many, many references to, early on in his first rage at Goneril, he says, old fond eyes beweep this cause again, I'll pluck ye out and cast you with the water that you lose to temper clay. If you listen carefully, you'll hear eyes and sight 
and seeing and seeing feelingly and needing no eyes to see the truth. Uh, that is, you know, in a sense, Lear himself begins to see things in a way that has nothing to do with actual sight. It's perception. Do you think he changes as a character oh. through the story? Oh, vastly. The interesting thing is he becomes more and more out of touch. He becomes madder. You see someone gradually going mad, and his madness takes many forms. Early on, it's the madness of sheer anger, irrational anger. When he gets out onto that heath and he sees poor Tom, the naked beggar, in my mind, it's like an electric jolt. It sort of takes him into a new kind of madness. When he says, um, Why, thou wert better in thy grave than to answer with thy uncovered body this extremity of the skies. Is man no more than this? Consider him well. Thou owest the worm no silk, the beast no hide, the sheep no wool, the cat no perfume. Here's three on us are sophisticated. Thou art the thing itself. Unaccommodated man is no more but such a poor, bare, forked animal as thou art. And he immediately starts to rip off all of his clothes. Off, off, you lendings, come, unbutton here. That's another stage of his madness, at which point he thinks, even the clothes we wear are a lie. We're covering something up with them. I'm going to be naked. I'm going to face nature as a natural man. I'm going to reject everything that smacks of deceit and hypocrisy. This is madness, but it's also perception. It's also a truth that he never had access to before. And that's the profundity of the play. On your New York Times blog, which is a rich source of your own personal insight as well as to uh, understandings of, of, of the play, I read this message you got from a fan in Denver. And he says, I wish you had quoted the ensuing lines, which remain so appallingly timely. Take physic, pump, you do it, I can't. Poor naked wretches, wheresoever you are, that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm. How shall your houseless heads and unfed sides, your looped and windowed raggedness, defend you from seasons such as these? I've taken too little care of this. Take physic, pomp. Expose thyself to feel what wretches feel, that thou mayst shake the superflux to them and show the heavens more just. And at just that moment, poor Tom emerges from the hovel and Lear (coughs) snaps. He goes a lot madder than he already is and he begins to see the world with a kind of blinding clarity in madness. That is the moment where Lear suddenly feels the, the suffering of the poor. That's his moment of perceiving the horrors of inequality to wrench us into a very contemporary uh, debate. 
Lear suddenly sees the difference between a man and a beggar, uh, a king and a beggar, and sees the injustice of that. And isn't there a sense of awareness on his part that that he's ruled this kingdom without really regard for those he could not see, of course, or for whom he could not feel? Precisely. Which, yeah. to wrench it, as you say, at the contemporary turns, often strikes me as the prevailing ethos of Washington. I don't want to be political <laughs> at this. So, but your fan in Denver mm-hmm. gets it. He says, from the Rio Grande to Detroit, and from Gaza to the Ganges, lines to ponder just now. Yeah. He gets it. He gets it. I, and I feel very lucky to be in a play that is provoking that kind of a response. There's this very lively discussion going on in London as we speak uh, about whether Lear is the embodiment of age-related dementia, the very phenomenon that we moderns are struggling with in the 21st century, uh, never before, as never before, the implications of long life, the shame, the embarrassment, the anger, helplessness. As you know, Alzheimer's is a wrecking ball. Now, this could be our inevitable instinct to read into Shakespeare what we want to see there as opposed to what he intended there. But there is this moment in the play when Lear cries out, who is it that can tell me who I am? Mm -hmm. And I remember that in my mother. I remember that in others, loved people we loved who Mm -hmm. made this passage. Does this come to you as you perform? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, I mean, all of us who've gone past the age of 60. We've seen our parents grow old, if we're lucky, if we haven't lost them young. And you see them lose capacities, and it's extraordinarily painful. I think Shakespeare's depiction of dementia in the very latest, the, the uh, one of his last scenes, when he recognizes Cordelia. I fear I am not in my perfect mind. Methinks I should know you and know this man, yet I am doubtful, for I am mainly ignorant what place this is, and all my skills remembers not these garments, nor do I know where I did lodge last night. Do not laugh at me, for as I am a man, I think this lady to be my child, Cordelia. And so I am. I am. <laughs> now that is an exquisite portrait of, of an old man struggling with dementia, thinking he knows his own daughter. I mean, what an amazing piece of playwriting 400 years ago. I mean, Shakespeare surely saw demented old men and women struggling to make sense of the world. And he he just portrays it so accurately. Do you fear the withering of your powers? Of course. You try to learn this part. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. There's a a line I won't crawl. (laughs) No, it's, uh, you know, we're... it's an, this is an interesting moment. I've just entered into that window where you can play Lear. When you're old enough to play him and you're young enough to play him, 
because you have to have the strength to play the part, and yet you have to have some sense of impending old age. Were you circling Lear all these years? I always thought about Lear because you're, you're always asked, is there some role that you want to eventually play? And the only answer I ever had to that was King Lear, which is the obvious. It's kind of the big Mount, right. Ever, Mount Everest role. Uh, so I've thought about it, and it's, you know, you can't read those speeches without being enormously moved and just wanting to play that part. I, I've rarely been in a play where I've been so eager to get on to the next scene. One scene ends, and I think, yeah, now I get to do that. You know, it's, a, it's great. I, I think the most sublime scene is that one that I quoted to you, of him recognizing Cordelia. I really can't think of another thing on stage which is as deeply moving as that, and it affects me every single night. John, King Lear, <laughs> thank you for being with me. Such a pleasure, Bill, as always. At our website, BillMorris.com, John Lithgow on his new film, Love is Strange, and more of our conversation about Shakespeare and King Lear. That's at BillMoyers.com. I'll see you there, and I'll see you here next time. Moyers and Company is produced by Public Affairs Television. You can learn more about the team that collaborates to produce the series at BillMoyers.com. Funding is provided by Ann Gumowitz, encouraging the renewal of democracy. Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security at Carnegie.org. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. The Herb Alpert Foundation, supporting organizations whose mission is to promote compassion and creativity in our society. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Kohlberg Foundation, Barbara G. Fleischman. And by our sole corporate sponsor, Mutual of America, designing customized individual and group retirement products. That's why we're your retirement company.